it's almost like, what if you looked at challenges in your life as a gift? Like how, how would you operate different as a human being? To me, I think it's a game changer because what it got me out of is like sitting back and like adopting that victim mentality. Why me? And it's like, no, you know what? This is actually going to be something that I can use to become a better person. And that's me, Mike Kearney, on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. Many people die with their music still on them. Too often, it is because they are always getting ready to live. Before they know it, time runs out. I love this quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. Unfortunately, it rang true to me for much of my life. So today, I'm turning the tables where my good friend Jeff Raz is going to grill me. Jeff is an accomplished author. He just came out with his third book, Love Death Circus. He's a director, playwright, educator, and performer, coach, and consultant. He's even a clown. Go Google him for that one. I did not dig the idea when Jeff approached me with the idea a few months back. This podcast is not about me. I've merely created a space for normal people like you and me to tell their stories. But after giving it some thought, I realized that I am finally singing my song now, and I do have a story to tell. Times when I got knocked on my ass. What I did to create the life I am living today and everything in between. My hope is that some of the things that I picked up along the way can help those of you who are lost and are looking to live a more fulfilling life. Things like the need to pay attention to signs that are telling you that you're not living the life you were supposed to. Why the how is 10x more challenging and in my opinion, more important than the why and the what. Creating a fulfilling life requires a lot of intentionality. Boring maybe, but really damn important in my experience. Or how about the importance of being ready to take shots when you are doing something different or disruptive? And finally, why becoming the best version of yourself requires that you treat the hard times as a gift. My name is Mike Kearney, your guest for the day. After spending nearly three decades at Deloitte, I am devoting my life to helping people sing their song as a coach and as a podcast host. These stories of rock bottom and redemption are the inspiration for the podcast. If you are stuck or lost and are trying to figure out your path forward, I'm hopeful that my story can help you sing your song. At the very least, it will give you insight into what one person did, me, when he finally got clear on what was important in life. So let's get to it. Me sharing my story with Jeff Raz. So, Mike, you run the podcast, Time to Sing Your Song, where we are right now. And it gives you a chance to talk to lots of different people about crisis moments in their lives and how they, how they grew from them, how they changed. And today we get to switch that and I get to ask you that. So, what What's a crisis moment in your life and how have you grown from that? Well, I do have to say, um, first of all, Jeff, thank you very much for turning the table on me. It's, it's kind of odd to be here talking about myself. I'm, I'm typically not somebody that likes to talk about themselves too much. Not that I, I like to hide things. I just like to make it about the other people. But you know, when I, when I came up with this podcast idea, I think everybody knows cause I've chatted about this, but, um, this was really my opportunity to talk to normal people, everyday people like you and me that, you know, had gotten knocked in their ass, um, in some different way. 
and maybe things looked very bleak, but they were able to overcome. Um, and I'm a big believer in, in hearing people's stories and hopefully coming out with a nugget or two that I personally can apply in my life. And so, you know, it's interesting, um, and this may take a few minutes and we can kind of dive into this and, and really just jump right into it. But I, I think there's been a number of things that have happened in my life that, you know, I would say, you know, amounted to a crisis, certainly in the moment, but I think really have helped me grow and, and quite frankly, have made me who I am today. Um, and actually, before I even start going through this, one of the things I would say is everybody's dealing with shit. Some people don't like to share it, which is totally understandable, but um, I don't think anything that I'm about to share is that unique to me because, you know, every single person has something hard in their life. And I know a lot of people that are listening probably are going through something really hard right now. So um, I am not like unique, <laughs> a sample yeah. size of one by any means. Um, so I would say the first probably in the, maybe the one that had the biggest impact on me was my mom. And I, I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, but uh, back in 1992, early January 1992, my mom died when she was 52 years old, mm. which is super young. Yeah. And uh, she died because she was a hardcore alcoholic. Um, I remember first realizing it when we were on a trip uh, in New York in 1981. So this is about a decade earlier. And I remember thinking, wow, something's, something's wrong with my mom. Like something's not right. And then she essentially proceeded to drink herself to death over the next 10 years. And, and when I mean, when I say drink herself to death, I mean, she literally drank every single day, every waking hour. But she also had a, a pretty successful career at Chevron. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, they clued into it. She had gone to rehab a couple of times. But the reason why I bring up my mom's death is it was that moment in my life where I was like, okay, it's time to grow up. Like I was a uh, sophomore in college. I did okay. I mean, I think I had like, I don't know, maybe a 3.2 and, you know, I was working 20 to 30 hours a week, which I kind of always did. But it was that moment in time where I was like my safety net and, and, and I'm very thankful for this, but my safety net is gone mm -hmm. and I need to grow up and I need to become, it sounds kind of corny, but like kind of like a man, like my future is my responsibility now. And so, you know, while it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to go through, you know, essentially watching my mom die for 10 years, you know, that moment in time really helped me become who I am today. That's, that's a painful story. And those 10 years seem incredibly hard. And I'm not sure all of us would, would have had that same thought at that moment as a sophomore in college saying, okay, essentially the last gift your mother gave you was the gift of an opportunity to grow up pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, yeah, you know what? I don't know if you're getting at why was I able to channel that into mm -hmm. like bettering myself? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was fear because I had a, a dad that was a San Francisco cop and was not always the easiest to deal with. So I, I don't, I don't know if I had any alternatives, I guess, in my mind at that point in time. So it was like, buckle up, take care of yourself and move on uh, because he certainly wasn't going to be the supportive one that when my mom was coherent, <laughs> she was. So that the necessity moment uh, was there too. What did you actually do? Like what changed between January 1992 and say May 1992 in your life? Well, I don't even know if it was um, January. I think it was like January 6th is when she passed. And I think it was like January 
I don't know, 13th. Literally, it was a week. I mean, I, I, I thought in the moment, like, I'm changing. And so some of the things that I did, I, I, I was a little behind in school, um, which is a whole nother reason for it. Nothing bad. I just had to drop a class. And so I remember um, thinking, I'm going to have to start to buckle down in school. I got to get out in four years uh, because it was expensive. And so I worked my ass off, Jeff. I didn't, I didn't have a typical, and this is not like pity party me. Cause there's a lot of people out there that have similar situations, but I just worked my ass off. I, I worked 30 hours a week. Um, I took school extremely seriously. Um, I think one of the things I would say is I'm not the smartest person. There's certainly people that, you know, are brighter than me, but I was like, nobody is going to outwork me. Mm-hmm. And so I worked my ass off in school. And I think, you know, in my last 72 units, I may have gotten one or two B's and all wow. A's. And once again, this was not, this was not because I was smart. It was like, I'm going to work my ass off. And so rather than going to, to parties and doing all the fun stuff, you know, I, I focused. And I would also say I working, I, you know, I, like I said, I had a job. I actually think that was good because it, it created a situation where I had to be extremely thoughtful about how I used my time huh. um, because I didn't have a lot of extra time. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, like, you know, the, the, the free time I had, I was, I was studying. And, and, and you were also in grief and grief takes time. I have found it, it, it's surprising. And you, you had this schedule that didn't allow for much extra time, which I imagine also helped uh, totally. f- avoid falling into the depth of, of grief, that kind of um, stalling out that can happen. Did, did that, if you, if you look back, obviously this is something you think about a lot in the podcast. What did you save from that time, that time when you, those last 72 units, uh, what have you used in your, in your career from that? And I'm asking that pointedly because having worked with you quite a bit, uh, you do work really hard, but you do not have uh, that feeling that I get from some people, which is I have to outwork everyone at every moment, which means I'm going to work constantly. You have a lot of ways to put boundaries around your work. So you're working, in my opinion, really smart, but not the kind of push that it sounds like you had to do that last part of college. Yeah. I don't know if it was as a result of my mom passing and working my ass off, like who I am today. There's a lot of things that have happened since then. Mm -hmm. You know, I think probably my biggest learning uh, from that situation is, you know, we're all kind of flawed human beings. And the one thing I would say, and this is not answering your question directly. And and I think there's other examples I could share uh, to get to the answer of your question, but Mm -hmm. um, we're all flawed human beings. My mom was an incredible person. And I think what I found is that there are certain people out there, you know, that take a drink or do a drug and it just fucks their life up. Mm. And I think as a society, especially back then, people are extremely judgmental. And until you see it up close, like I'll tell you, I remember when my mom was on her deathbed, she said, you know, I, I, I finally get it. And it Ooh. was because she was, you know, in the hospital for, I don't know, like two weeks maybe. So she was sober. (laughs) Like, and so I think she finally was like, Oh my God, what have I done? Like literally, I think that's probably what was going through her mind, but it's a disease Uh and she could not go a day without drinking. And she went to rehab, you know, multiple times and you know, it's a disease. So I think the one thing, if I were to take anything from that period of my life is that, you know, 
somebody is going through something and oftentimes it's not, it's not something that they want to go through. It's not something that they wished upon themselves. And um, so I think I probably have a whole lot more empathy now, especially people that are going through addiction, but people that, you know, there's something outside that is controlling them or creating a situation that's not optimal for them. And it's somewhat out of their control. Now, I also believe there are things that we should do in life uh, to take control and, and take responsibility, but, but addiction, especially alcoholism and drug abuse is something that I have a, a lot of empathy for. Yeah. Which is, there's lots of different ways people can go at that realization and that uh, knowing you again, I know the, the empathy you bring to work and, uh, some sense of the empathy you bring to your family and your, your life outside of work. Uh, you, you mentioned other things, and I think you were mentioning other crises that led to other realizations. Uh, you want to go on to another crisis that led to another set of realizations? You know what? I could probably package three. <laughs> okay. Funny. Sounds actually funny. A I could package three things. No, but I think you know, I, I, I got into the company I used to work for Deloitte. I've shared this with other people. Mm-hmm. I, I started to do well. I think, you know, the work that I put in was recognized. You know, I, I, I think I was kind of a red tulip in a sea of yellow ones. Like I, I always kind of was trying to innovate or buck the trends, but there were three things that happened, um, over probably a period of 12 years that really made me realize that life is, <laughs> life is really short. Um, and that it's important to be intentional about the things that you do. And a lot of the things that maybe I prioritize were not important at all. And and mm-hmm. when I say, you know, some of the things, you know, whether it's like a title, you know, like, oh, you're a partner or making great amount of money or having a second, you know, home or whatever mm-hmm. it is, like I finally figured out wasn't important. And the three things were as follows. First of all, in 2005, my, my wife and I were flying back from uh, Miami on a trip and we had an engine fire and it was the scariest goddamn thing I've ever gone through. And I remember God. with my Blackberry, like, oh shit, I'm going to have to text my kids because who the hell knows where this is going to go. Now, I got to be honest with you. I've learned since then seven, I think it was a 757 um, can fly very well on one engine and we probably weren't you know, at that much risk. Yeah, but that's not the point at the moment, is it? Right. Well, yeah, especially when the lady across the row from us um, or across the aisle screamed, um, oh, shit, the engine's on fire. That's the one thing I remember. <laughs> and so so we landed and I was like, oh, my God, it was one of those moments where, you know, this all this stuff could end at any time. So that was the first one. The second one uh, was a near drowning experience that I had with my nine-year-old, I think he was, he was at the time, he's 14 now in, in 2017. It was Christmas Eve in my favorite place on earth, which is uh, Santa Teresa, Costa Rica. And we were out surfing with my daughter and we were helping her. And she ended up going in because there was kind of a riptide, but it wasn't so bad. And then my son and I, who did not have a surfboard, got caught up in the rift, riptide. Mm. And... And most people that are listening would be like, well, you know, swim parallel to the shore. Well, I didn't know that. Like, I guess I'm a dumbass. I figured out since then we swam into the water and there's two things that I will remember till the day I die. And, and, and actually if there's anything that I would be emotional about, it's this, because I remember thinking, um, every time a big wave would hit, is my son going to come up? Oh my God. And that was the scariest goddamn thing ever. Like, Mm. you know, is he going to make it out? And I really didn't, 
I mean, obviously I care about myself a little, but I didn't care about myself at all at that moment in time. It's like, is my son going to be able to make it? And to this day, that kid worked harder than I've ever seen to get out of that situation. And then the second thing is I, I remember thinking for a moment, oh my God, this is what it's like to die. And, uh, and I don't want to be too melodramatic about this because a lot of people, once again, you know, have situations like this, but once again, it gave me that, that clarity, like, you know, am I living the life that I really was meant to live? Because uh, actually, it, it, it might be over right now. Because it may be over. Right. Exactly. Have I done everything that I wanted to do at that moment in time? And am, am I at peace? And I would have said, no, I'm not at peace. Like there's a lot of things that I was doing that I wasn't happy with. And I felt like I could do more. And then I would say that the third one um, was the same year. I was actually thinking about this in advance, like the, the chronology of it, if you will. And this was really was, this wasn't a crisis per se. It was just another wake up call. Um, I don't know what it is with flying from Miami to San Francisco. <laughs> you should, yeah. you should probably avoid that flight from now on, I would say. Well, especially because what I didn't mention, and I'm not going to go into this because it wasn't that big of a deal, but I had another time where I lost, uh, I was on a flight that lost an engine and it was from San Francisco to Miami, like a year later. Now this one wasn't as scary. It didn't catch on fire. It just went out, but I'm mm. like, what the hell is going on with American <laughs> airlines, you know, San Francisco to Miami <laughs> flight. But, um, but I was on a flight from Miami to San Francisco in 2017. And uh, I was sitting next to a partner um, of mine at Deloitte. And I remember just falling asleep right away. It was like an eight o'clock flight. And two, two and a half hours later, I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I, I'm going to get sick. And it's not like, oh, I'm going to get sick and I've got 20 or 30 seconds. I can hold it in type sick. It was like, if I'm not in the bathroom in the next three seconds, I'm going to be getting sick over everybody. Mm. And uh, so I jumped up and I started to go to the bathroom and I... I remember the next thing that I saw was the flight attendants looking at me and I had fainted. Mm-mm. I'd fainted on the way to the bathroom, which once again, there's humor and everything, right? Because I was like, this is the most embarrassing goddamn thing I've ever <laughs> gone through. I'm like up in business class and I'm looking at the flight attendants. Everybody's staring at me because I just fainted. And you know, I was right next to the bathroom, I guess at least. And so for the next hour, I, I sat up in front. I did not feel well, but I think what I realized there is I was pushing myself too hard. You know, I was working, I was working hard. I was traveling all the time. I was probably not eating as well as I could. I probably, you know, was drinking more than I should, you know, when you go to business dinners and yep. all that stuff. And it was like the, the totality of it was putting me into a, a situation where my health wasn't great. Now I did go to the doctor. They said, oh, there's nothing wrong. But, but listen, when you, when you faint on a flight, I don't give a shit what doctors say. That's not a good thing. And I didn't want to have that repeated. And so, so Jeff, I would say those three incidents, even though they were spaced out, you know, over a 12 year period of time, really put into context that it was important for me to be doing the things in life that, that made me feel fulfilled. That, that thing you said a few minutes ago of important to be intentional, that phrase uh, really seems to fit with you, but that also like in, if if you're traveling too much, you need to be intentional to travel less. If you're drinking too much at these business dinners, you need to be intentional about that. Does that does that ring with what what you were actually thinking at that time? It does, and it's easy to say you know make those small changes, which I did. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I started to get really clear on you know the trips that I would go on. 
Um, I started drinking once I'm so bad, especially in the context of my mom's story, but like, I, 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 I would kind of cut those things out, but I think where I really get to on this notion of uh, intentionality is a decision that I made probably around 2011, where I was like, I want to create a life that really does fulfill me Mm. and I need I need to be intentional about that. And I guess, I guess where I'm going with that is I had three, I have three kids as I indicated, and I had, you know, a mortgage, I had, you know, the prospect of them all going to college, I had responsibility. Mm -hmm. So as much as I would have loved to have just gone and pursued, you know, whatever it was that I was passionate about in 2011, you know, I was also a realist, like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that to them. And I think a lot of times you hear this narrative of like, you know, fuck it, just quit and go to Costa Rica and live your life out, which for some people could be great. Yeah. But I was like, that's not going to work for me. So what are the things that I can do now so that I could start living a life true to who I am? And how can I start to position myself longer term so I could do the things that I want? And so the notion of intentionality for me started to become being really clear on what I wanted to accomplish in life and I didn't think about this just, you know, from a, a work perspective, I thought about it kind of a 360. And then what are the things that I can do so that I really started to feel good about who I was and, and the things that I did in life. And that I felt like when I went to work, I was pretty excited to do it. And then once again, uh, preparing myself potentially to do something different longer term. So that's, that's, that's really what, yeah. That's a huge amount. I just want to take pieces of that because I, I imagine uh, many people are thinking what I'm thinking is, that sounds really good, Mike. How does that happen? I cannot see how I would do that. Let me just say what I, the, the complexity that I just heard you say, which is uh, you, you, you had, so about t- 2011, you said, I, I, need a, I need a plan because I need to live a life that I want. And these crisis moments led, led to that. And they also, I think, maybe goosed you along the way on that. But you did something that I, I think is a little different, which is you you made you said the plan has to be two parts. There has to be things that I do now that make my life more fulfilling now. And there are things I can't do now. It's the reality. I have three kids, et cetera. So right. you then you also said there's two parts to this. I'm I'm doing making serious but small changes now. Uh, traveling less, and then I. But it's it's all leading to down the road when I have a little more flexibility. I'm going to make some bigger changes, and I just so just tell me that's that's a big idea. I don't think most of maybe everyone else listening does that. I have never done exactly that. How did you do that? Like seriously, sat down and said, uh, did you put uh, like a date for? This is the day I'm going to make the big change. So in the seven and a half years between now and then, I'm going to make a little change every three weeks. Just what was the, the just a very practical part of that? Yeah, you know what? I think there's probably a very practical and I think there was just kind of something that evolved over time. So I'll just start because the evolved piece is probably pretty easy. The the, the first thing that I, I started to really think about in 2011 is living, I know it's going to sound simple, but living below my means. And, you know, it may sound simple, but I don't think many people do that. 
Yeah. It is well, and and so what I started to think of is like, you know what? I don't need a brand new car every year. And listen, if you're a partner at Deloitte, you're making pretty goddamn good money. So I also want to just say that. And mm-hmm. and so I did not live by any means a a poor life. I mean, we lived a fantastic life. But what I I started to think of is as I make more money, my lifestyle is not going to change with that. And so I kind of locked that in in 2011. And what that enabled me to do is to start to save. So I had options in the future. So I think there was, yes, like, is there this date in the future I'm trying to work towards? I think so. I don't know how intentional I was about it in 2011, but, you know, I kind of thought about like, you know, if in my fifties I could be doing things that I really want to do, that feels pretty good. And you and need, I would say, you need some money for that. You I need, need some you money need savings for that. Right. And I think a lot of times people's talk about just what you need to save, um, which I think is pretty straightforward and understandable. It changed my mindset about money. Mm-hmm. Right? Money and, meant something and, different. Right. Yeah. And it meant like, I, I, I really started, <laughs> it's going to sound lame too, but like I really got into minimalism mm-hmm. and the whole idea that we buy so much crap that we don't use or don't need. And, and this is a funny example, but we have these Yeti cups, like I'm in Austin now. So Yeti is a big brand here. I must have like 10 Yeti cups, which doesn't sound minimalistic, but it's because <laughs> everybody gives them or, you know, like you get them for Deloitte. I got it from my home builder, all these people. And I'm like, I do not need 10 Yeti cups. No. That's the world we live in. And so yeah. the whole point of it was I'm going to stop buying shit I don't need. And so to me, when, when people start to think about how do I prepare myself you know, to potentially do something on my own. I'm telling you that the money you bring in is important, but it's also the lifestyle you lead. Yep. And so I know a lot of people that would never be able to do what I've done at this point in time because they have too big of a nut. You know, they have, they have those vacation homes, they have, yep. you know, beautiful cars, they spend a ton of money. Yep. So and- when I think of this, it was setting myself up financially both from what I was saving and what I was spending so that I could do it. So that was, that was something I did. I, what I love here, and I'm going to insert a little of my own stories. You at that, at this moment are a Deloitte partner. When I was a, a, a young street juggler, I came to exactly the same conclusion. Uh, as with you, I was not the best at anything. Um, I worked really hard. And I realized early on that money can equal a bunch of things or money can equal flexibility. And I actually didn't care about the things because I was touring a lot and things were not, things were a pain in the butt. You had to find storage. But flexibility meant that I could turn down that so-so job and wait for that really good job to come through as a freelancer. Um, I, I love that. And I'm totally in tune with that. Uh, I'm not going to actually ask you this question unless you want it, but how one passes that idea on to one's children is an interesting thought. Let me, let me say this and I'll give you my answer to that. Cause I think it coincides when I, and this is what I would encourage everybody to do. Get really clear on the things that bring you joy or fulfill you in life, like write it down. And so, you know, my, my list is pretty damn easy, especially when I think of my life now and, and maybe even over the past five or six years. But like going to the gym every day with one of my sons is one of the happiest things I do. That doesn't cost a lot of money. Walking my dog outside is like amazing, free, right? I just, Listening to a kick-ass podcast, free. Like people make all this great content and it's free. I mean, I guess you got to pay for your phone, but everybody has a damn phone now, right? Um, what podcast would you recommend? I think I think 
Time to Sing Your Song might be the one that's right up there for me. Uh, um, I'm listening to Ed Milet quite a bit right now. I, I tend to migrate to the podcasts that are, um, which sounds cheesy, kind of focused on improving your life. Impact Theory is another one. But I kind of migrate. Rich Roll I used to listen to quite a bit. Um, there's a lot. Of, I mean, the one thing that's incredible, and this is actually something I need to be more intentional about, is finding great podcasts, great interviews. And, and what I love more than anything is it's not even necessarily the podcast interviewer. It's the people that they talk to. And there's a lot of amazing people. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of down on, you know, where we are uh, in our world from a social media and digital perspective. Like I think it's actually created a mental health crisis in many respects, mm -hmm. but if you use it well, oh my God, there's so much stuff that you can mm -hmm. learn. And so that's what I try to do. The one thing I'll say, Jeff, the, the one thing that I love doing more than anything, once again, free when I was writing down the list, and this is another thing I, I, I owe a lot to where I am today is we bought this house in, in Austin, Texas. And, um, you know, we, we were like, well, we got to do the backyard and my sons and I are doing the backyard. Maybe it's a little more me. Um, and it's taken me like the last six months and I probably have another six months and I've had tractors and ditch diggers and, you know, all those different things that I rent. It has been so satisfying because it, it allows me to get outside. It requires me to do hard work. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. So I mean, in some respects, I'm actually saving money because otherwise I could pay somebody to do it. Right. Uh, but it gives me a lot of, I don't know if it's joy, because in the moment I'm like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> but but it, it feels good once I'm done with it. So th these, the big three things that I'm pulling, I'm, I'm pulling it out for a moment here, is empathy, hard work, and intentionality. And this idea of intentionality is fits with our conversation just now about money. And I think the recommendation that I'm getting is don't, don't follow the assumptions around what money means. Totally. Be intentional about it. And your particular intentionality, which happens to match very closely with mine, is money means flexibility now and in the future. Uh, the things matter less to me. And as a matter of fact, I can even start teasing myself at all these Yeti cups and I can uh, be proud of a car that's 10 years old because I walk to my car and I say, that's buying me flexibility. And, and, and then hard work, you just were talking about the backyard, that the work of that um, also fits in with the ideas around money, but hard work is a core idea. I do want to point out, hard work's come up in a few times in this when you were in college after your mother died, the hard work, your son working this hardest he'd ever worked to get through that riptide. Uh, I, mm. I'm not the smartest person, but I work hard and hard work has come up on the other side. I've been working too hard. I fainted on the plane. I've mm. been traveling so much. So whereas the intentionality feels pretty much pure, like, yeah, be intentional. It's going to help every time. The hard work seems a little more paradoxical. And uh, one of my favorite things that you have given me is the saying of, if it's not hell yes, it's no. And that's about working smart, not hard. So talk about that, if you would, a little bit. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I love that you pointed out my paradox because I've got a lot of them. But I think, I think what it is, it's, it's hard work at things that matter to you. Mm, okay. And so I think that's the delineation. I mean, I don't want to overcomplicate it. To me, like I do believe in hard work. 
And I'm very restless. Like now that, you know, I've left Deloitte, I, I could sit around and do absolutely nothing and I'd be okay. Once again, I, I've structured my life so that it, I'm kind of fine financially. Um, mm-hmm. But that would drive me nuts. And so like, I, I do like working hard, but I, I think it really matters that you're working hard on something that fulfills you. It's funny, my wife just started this business, kind of like an online boutique. I've never seen her work harder for less money in my entire life. And it's because it's a, just a brand new business, but it doesn't matter because it gives her so much, so much joy. And so it's easy for her to work. It's easy for me to work on something that, you know, uh, pays us back, you know, just in how we feel. It's really hard to work hard when you're doing something that, you know, you don't feel like you're making an impact. So I guess that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, it matters to you. It brings you joy, and you can feel the impact it makes. Those are those might be yeah. three things that you would look at to say, uh, "I'm working hard." Is it in one or more of those three categories? Yep. Uh, hey Jeff, one thing you said because I I do think this is important and more because I learn based on my own personal failures. I think mm-hmm. in life, but you asked the question of how do you teach this to your kids? Yeah. Now, please. now I don't know. Once again, like sometimes I hate giving my, my two cents because, you know, I'm on a journey to continue to, in this context, be a better dad. Mm-hmm. But what I will tell you is in the last year, it really, for me, has been about spending um, time with my kids so that I'm not necessarily just a parental figure. I'm not necessarily also a friend, but I'm somebody that cares deeply about them and just use the example of um, going to the gym with my sons. Mm -hmm. I have better conversations with them when it's organic and it's not in that parental figure position. And I think I have 10 X more influence on them. Mm -hmm. And and it's because it doesn't look like I'm trying to influence them. Quite frankly, I'm not even sure if in the moment I'm trying to like, you know, I'm not being nefarious and being like, Oh, I'm going to slide this. I'm going to do this Jedi mind trick and, and get them to figure it out. It's just like, I have a real relationship. So for me, the most important thing is to have a real relationship with your clients. <laughs> wow. Did you like that? So have a real relationship with your kids. See, I've been programmed for 30 years, but, um, but have a real relationship with your kids and then they do watch you. And there's times where I'm like, oh my God, they probably think I'm a big cornball. But but like I do believe a lot that you as a parent should live a life that you're proud of and that your kids would be proud of as well. And they do pick up the stuff. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things I tell my kids, and this is something I believe in more than anything, is don't do anything ever in life where you have a hard time sleeping at night. Same mm-hmm. that's my kids, so my kids all the time. And I think I model it. Like I try to do the right thing in every circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so I think by just having a real relationship, trying to break free of that, like, you know, I'm the dad, this is what you need to do. That has never worked out for me, but spending real time with your kids and then modeling the right behavior is probably what's worked best for me. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that answer. And I actually, I, you're not going to like this. I'm going to go back to when you slipped and said clients, because uh, you and I, it's one of the things we've shared in the business world is we treat clients as full human beings um, and don't accept relationships where, uh, for me, being treated as a vendor, for example. Mm-hmm. And you and I bonded as two people 
uh, you were working, your partner Deloitte, and I was a communications consultant, and we could sit down, and if there's other people in the room, we would sit down as, as human beings together trying to make something great. And you're suggesting that, that some version of that also works with family. Um, and, and it seems odd. Well, it's, you know, people talk about a work-life balance, and life usually means everything not at work. Well, we're alive at work. And we're often working when we're in the rest of our life. And I think you're, the core there is when you said real relationships with everybody. I had a client that used to call us a vendor and it pissed me off so bad. What I always would think is like, you don't understand how far I would go to make you successful if you actually partnered with me on this. And so, you know, if there's anybody out there that, looks at consultants or other you know, entities that you engage to help you in any way that the more that you partner with them and you work with them and you don't look at them just as a commodity or as a, a vendor, you're probably going to get more out of them. Yep. And if you don't get more out of them, then, then that's the time to, to change. Yep. Well said. I, I, I don't want to move all the way to business because I also share with you this idea of, I'm, I'm going to say a real relationship is based on real time. Uh, driving my kids to things. Um, my younger son, who's now 20, cut my hair through the entire pandemic until he, he just moved away. And I, I just yesterday got a haircut from someone else. But that time of having your son cutting your hair, and we didn't talk, but it was grounded in two real people adjusting their relationship to being two adults. Uh, I think that's that, and that, that speaks to the third thing uh, in your intentionality, hard work, and empathy. That speaks to empathy um, and, and in, in modeling empathy for your kids, but also that, that real time with your kids and your clients. I love that you came up with those three words because I never thought about you know, those being three words that define the way that I think. But I want to add one, and I'm not going to go into this story too much. It's not my story to tell. It, it's one that I hope that I, I am able to tell with my older son at some point in time, but he has been through hell and back over the last, and you know this, Jeff, but mm -hmm. hell and back over the last five years, he's on a great upward uh, trajectory. But the other thing I would say is if, it's, if, it, if the person is important to you, and, and I know this may sound kind of trite, but, but what I've learned is you don't give up on those that matter. Mm -hmm. And I just think about his situation and I think about other things in life, which thank God I didn't give up on him because, you know, I'm not sure our relationship would have persevered and I'm not sure he would be where he is today if I had. So I am thankful for that. And I'm also thankful that that's a mindset I've cultivated over the last several years that you just don't give up, you know, on people or things that matter. How does that show up? I, I you and I talk about our families together um, and so I know how that's shown up for you. You, you just gave a, a quick peek at that. How does that show up with other folks? How does that show up in business for you? Uh, how does that show up in other parts of your life? That's an interesting question. Um, well, I would say in business, you know, I think there's been many examples Oh, actually, you know what? I've got a good example. I had somebody that used to work for me many years ago, and she was incredible at what she did, but she ran through kind of a, a rough patch. Mm. 
And I don't know if I thought about like, don't give up on her at this point in time, but I knew that she was good. And what I didn't know, and this goes back to, you never know the devil somebody's dealing with. I didn't know some really heavy shit she was going through. Yeah. And so, and so actually that's maybe another learning is I always try to put myself into somebody else's shoes. Maybe it goes back to that empathy. Like there may be something that's going on that they're not comfortable sharing, which is absolutely okay. And so I try to think about that when I'm evaluating or thinking about somebody whose performance may be off, but like, I didn't give up on her. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And she's one of my closest friends and Mm -hmm. ultimately did incredible things. And had I given up on her, I don't know. Well, who knows? She probably would have persevered. It didn't matter for me, but, but it did matter in the context of a relationship. Um, so that's a, I'm sure there's probably other examples, but that's, so you, you said to me when we were preparing for this, that, um, people know where they want to go. They don't know how to get there, which that, that is stuck with me. I wrote it down. That's why I could remember it. But I also, it was really stuck with me. How did you get there with empathy? And I'm going to put that in, in the context of that moment in January uh, 1992 when your mother died, uh, you had empathy for her, but I'm guessing that it was a lot of mixed emotions and you weren't feeling a lot of that real relationship support from your dad at that moment. What are the kind of practical steps you get to empathy in, in family and in work? What are so so maybe elaborate on that because I want to make sure I answer it right. When so you're asking what are the things that I do? Yeah. So to actually, this empathy or yes, um, it's it's so much easier with uh with like uh, planning finances. But so example, you 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 hold an idea that yeah. I don't know what this person's going through, and it that does it was a gift from your mother um, that they're probably going through something. And so you hold that idea. You also hold the idea, don't give up on those that matter. And if you've decided this person matters, then I don't give up on them. Those are two very practical uh, guidelines that you use. And maybe that's what you use. Uh, are there others? Something that that the rest of us might grab onto and, and figure out the how to get to empathy. Well, I think it does start with, and so I'm going to probably just repeat a little bit of what you've said, is just thinking about my normal life, which once again, I don't think that there's anything extraordinary about the challenges that I've faced, but it has taught me that we all face really difficult things in life. Okay. And so I think, I'm sorry, let me just note. So yeah. going, you just, that, that surprised me. You just went back to the kind of premise of the podcast and, and, and our conversation, which is there are these crisis moments and how you deal with them matter. And you're saying that how mm. you deal with a crisis is a very practical way to get to empathy. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think the reason why it's easy for me to show empathy is because, you know, I've gone through all of these experiences and I've probably, you know, as I was going through those, I felt judged, you know, to a certain degree, nothing bad, which, and, and I'm not even criticizing anybody that would have judged me in those circumstances, but I think it made me think, well, I don't, if I, I always learn more from like things not to do. I've said many times, like in leadership, like really shitty leaders have taught me how to be a better leader than great leaders. Because I'm like, I remember, I remember like in the early, I don't even want to call it time frame because then people could probably reconcile back. But I remember there was a few leaders that I worked with and I saw some horrible behavior, nothing, not illegal or even against policy or anything like yep. that. But I just saw bad behavior and I'm like, 
mental note, I never <laughs> want to operate like that. And so then I would kind of do a 180. Um, and I think that sounds really bad. But I mean, I do think, you know, if somebody's out there listening to this and you've got a really bad boss, you know, step back and think about what you can take out of that because there's probably enormous learnings and lessons that you could apply in your own life to make it better. And that's kind of what I would do. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, we all go through these and, and I think as a result of that, you know, the number one thing is I'm like, well, I've kind of had a hard time and I've been treated like shit sometimes, you know, as I was going through those. And so it's probably just the wise and right thing just to show a bit of empathy. Now, that's not to say that I'm perfect because I'm probably judgmental like many of us are from time to time, but I just try to put myself in that individual's position and give them yeah. you know, the benefit of the doubt. I really love this idea of, of learning from, from bad leaders. It, it's, it, it's taking this idea of lifelong learning a little bit further. Uh, usually think about lifelong learning as the joy of learning for one, from wonderful mentors and exemplars. And, and you're saying, and, and everyone else, you can learn from everyone else, even and especially those people who are driving you nuts. Well, and think about politics nowadays. And I'm not going to go into politics. This is not a right or left thing. But like, we don't have many adults in the room, you know, from a politics perspective. Yeah. And that teaches me, like, I would never go into politics. Um, which sounds like an egotistical thing, even thinking I could. But, but, but there are so many damn examples of how not to operate. Like, I was looking at something last night on Twitter. And it's both sides. So this is not relegated just to like the Democrats and Republicans. But like... I laugh when I see a 55 year old man or woman criticizing somebody else like a five year old. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, grow up, yeah. like literally grow up. And is that the type of leader? But that's where we're at. And so to me, that's a perfect example of another place where you can learn from really bad behavior and say, is that how I want to operate, you know, as a, as a human being? Yeah. And it's on tape. So is that what my legacy, is that what well, my legacy totally. adds a little, um, I want to take a, a little turn to this idea, again, something that you said to me that I noted and, and is thinking about, uh, this idea of living someone else's life versus living under your own terms. Yeah, I'm trying to think about the best way to position this, because I think there's a, a notion of um, being true to who you really are and then the how you do it. And so, so I think the one thing that you know, I, I finally realized was that I could still be successful and I didn't need to follow a cookie cutter, you know, partner at Deloitte or even, you know, husband or man or whatever in life. And so, you know, I, I got clear and, and this did really happen after some of those events we talked about, I got really clear on what I wanted to do in life. And so just even, you know, at Deloitte, I sat down and I could talk about the planning process, but I got sat down and I, got really clear on, on who I wanted to be in the context of how did I want to show up at work? What were the things that I wanted to work on? What type of a dad did I want to be? What type of a husband did I want to be? You know, what are the types of experiences I want to live in life? I, I like got really, really, really clear. And I think in many respects, it's where I started to, it's where I started probably to differentiate myself and be more successful because I was doing things that I loved. And, and that means, you know, I would go after things at work that, you know, really excited me. And if I was excited about it, um, I probably performed better. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably took more risks, which 
I always think it's funny to talk about risk because I don't think they're real risks, but it's like, mm -hmm. I think I took some corporate risk by positioning or coming up with ideas maybe that others didn't. But, but, but that intentionality goes back to intentionality and like deep planning allowed me really to live the life that I wanted to. And, and I got to tell you, Jeff, I mean, even, even our paths crossing the whole, I know I'm being a little facetious here, but the whole notion of like hiring a clown to train a bunch of Deloitte professionals, I always felt was funny. But when, when you and I connected I'm like, God, this is a professional actor that communicates better than 99.9%, .9%, maybe even hundred percent of people that I've ever engaged with, right? Like there's probably something this dude could teach us. And, and so doing stuff like that, like, oh my God, it was so much fun. And, and even if it didn't work out, I was kind of, I kind of got okay with that because the risk wasn't that great. And the payoff, actually, I don't even know if I thought about it in terms of like the payoff or the ROI. It just was really cool to be able to be involved with some of that stuff. And so once again, it just goes back to, you know, the type of person I am, I like to take risks. I like to innovate. I like to do these things. And it just felt right. And once I started living to those standards, even though I did get, you know, I got my hand slapped many, many times, mm -hmm. it just felt really good. Well, first I have to, I appreciate the compliment. And, and I also uh, felt early on when we were first working together that here's someone I can really work with, not be a vendor, not treat them as a client. You made it, you just made a little formula that I wrote down that I think will surprise many people. Deep planning can lead to being a maverick. As a matter of fact, if you want to be an effective maverick, you need some deep planning. So to to take risks, to be that risk taker, you need to have some structure, really good structure behind you. First of all, that was my formula from what you said. Do you buy that formula? And if so, say a little more, more about how that works for you. I, I totally buy it. And we didn't plan this. So that formula that Jeff came up with was not something I had shared with them. But I've had this big realization, this is something I shared with you in the past, over the last few years, and it's actually probably even becoming um, something that's really cemented in my mind based on some of the work that I'm doing now with different people. But I believe that people really have in their heart an idea of what they want to do and why they want to do it. Yeah. Or if they don't have it, it's not that difficult to figure it out because, you know, when you ask somebody, you know, what are the things that, you know, that you do that, you know, make you come alive? Um, what are the things that make you come alive and people will actually pay you for? And then what are some of the things that you do that you love that people will pay you for that you're actually good at? I always think of like those three yeah. uh, concentric circles. So I, I think people in their heart know what they wanted to do. And, and in my heart, I mean, I'm a pretty simple person. Like I just like helping people mm -hmm. um, in some way or another. And I like creating cool shit. Like that's yep. it. That's yep. it. That's all I really want to do. So given the fact that I knew kind of where I wanted to go and I knew why I wanted to do it, it really then required me to figure out the how. Mm -hmm. and, and the how seems so goddamn easy. Like, oh, Mike, you just put together a plan, you put together some goals and you just go from there. Well, yes, but a lot of people don't do that and they, they do it and they fail because they don't create good habits or they don't stick to it or they don't hold themselves accountable or other shit comes up in their life and they put it to the side. And so um, I, and this goes back probably to 2015, um, there was this podcast I was listening to, a guy named Michael Hyatt, 
and I forget even what he was. He was a CEO of some company and he was really big on goals. And so he had this PDF file that you could download and it was you know, the Michael Hyatt Life Planner. I'm sure you probably could still, still download it. Mm-hmm. I still have it to this day. Um, and it was like a comprehensive, like 360 degree assessment of where you are in life and where you wanted to go and what are the things that you needed to do. So, and even that, like, there's nothing special about that. That's just kind of planning one-on-one. I mean, I'm a consultant. That's what we, we do. So it's not like, it's not like it's not things that I, I hadn't thought about, but it really pushed me to think about, you know, what, what type of a partner at Deloitte did I want to be? Where did I want to be in 10 years? What type of dad do I want to be? Um, what do I want to think about in terms of finances, health, like all the different things that you would think about. Um, when you get clear on where you want to go in life. And for me, once again, it was innovate and help people. But in order to do that, there was a lot of things that I had to think about in order to make that come alive. Where it really, I think, helped me was a recommendation on how you actually put that plan into place. And so once again, I came out with a kick-ass life plan. Um, I think I've modified it quite a bit because it was probably too long, mm-hmm. a little bit too unwieldy, but where it really came alive for me was this idea that, um, you block and I would do this even with how busy I was, I'd block one full day where I'd go off site somewhere with my plan, um, every quarter. And I would evaluate where I was at, like am I being a good husband. Oh shit. I kind of have slipped there. Okay. I need to double down on that? Am I really being true to those things that I want to do at work? Am I establishing the financial situation so that I can create um, the freedom of, or the, the option of freedom down the road, which I'm big, I like freedom is like my number one thing now that I think about. Mm. Um, am I doing that with my finance? Oof, you know what? I should probably cut back here or, you know, maybe I should save a little more or do I really need that new car? Whatever it is. But I would do that quarterly, every quarter. And I would think, um, I would modify my life plan. And then every week on a Sunday, I would look at that life plan in the context of the things that I was going to do over the next week, month and over the next year. And so what that would force me to do is look at my calendar. I, this stuff is so goddamn basic, but for me, it was a game changer because I would start to look at my calendar and I'd be like, waste of time, waste of time, waste of time. Mm -hmm. I got to get out of that. Or Oh, that's an other person's priority. Well, I should probably talk to them. That's not something that I'm going to do. And and that goes back to that hell yes, hell no, but I'm not going to do that. And so I started to be very intentional about my, my calendar. And, you know, in the world that we oftentimes live in, your calendar is like everything. Yep. And so what I started to find over time is I was doing things that were in line with this life plan that I had put together and I get better and better and better at it. And there's that whole Covey thing. It's like the, the, you know, the, the non-urgent important things most people don't do. What I was starting to find myself doing was those non-urgent important things. Mm. And it had, it transformed my life. And those included personal. You did not, you, you did not uh, say, let me fill, fill in my business calendar and then I'll take care of my personal life in the 20 minutes that remains in the week. Yeah, I'm looking at right now because I've now boiled this down to like two pages. So I've gone from like 20 pages to two pages. But like my categories now are things like 
well, act two, so my post-delayed activities. So that's anything that I'm doing professionally now, um, health and wellness, family and friends, financial. So I still have my financial and the hobbies and home. Mm. And then I also articulate, this is actually my favorite edition. This was not, I don't think in the, the life plan that I used many, many years ago, um, but is an articulation of what I won't do, mm-hmm. which, which Jeff, to be honest, I think may be the most important thing. I think so because, too. Right. Say more about it. Like, uh, what, what, like, so I'm just thinking of, as I said before, the hell yes or hell no is beautiful. And the note on every one of your emails, which is, we all have too many emails and are overwhelmed. If you want, just call me, which like no one does, but that's a saying you were saying, I'm not going to engage in a very long back and forth on email. That's not how I work. So what are other things that you say no that you don't do and, and that you, those boundaries that you set? I want to I want to come back to this hell yes or hell no um, mm. in one second because um, I've got a good story that brings that to life. And it's actually probably been the most helpful for me. But it's, you know, things like and and actually this list has changed a lot in the last six months yeah. because now I'm not, you know, working 50 to 60 hours a week in a, yeah. a corporate world where I've got, you know, all these expectations. But um you know, my, my second one, my, my first one is that hell yes, hell no. And I'm looking at it right now. It's like taking on work that doesn't align with my goals. Mm-hmm. So basically if it ain't on my goal sheet, I'm not doing it at all. Or I'm going to reevaluate at that point in time, whether or not this is more important than some of the things. And I've actually had a lot of experiences over the last six months where I've got these incredible opportunities. And then I'm like, oh my God, I could do that. But then I'm not going to be able to do these other things yep. that I've been thinking about for years. And even though it's like a, it's an incredible opportunity working with great people. I've, I've said no, because it's not a priority at this point in time. The one that I like, this is my second to last one is I don't spend time with people who zap my energy. Mm-hmm. This one, I've had debates with this one guy that I'm really close with about like, you know, is it more important to work with people who are brilliant or people who make you feel alive? life is too goddamn short to work with those people who are, are brilliant, but are assholes. Mm. And I do every, especially now, cause I, I can control who I work with unilaterally at this point in time. But even when I was in at Deloitte, like if I came across somebody I did not want to work with, I did whatever was in my power not to work with them. Yep. And that from a mental health perspective is critical because there are, and this isn't a reflection on Deloitte at all, there's just a lot of assholes in this world that totally make you feel like shit, whether they're just, you know, political or backstabbing or whatever it may be. And, and Jeff, when I came across them, I would strategize around what can I do to get away from them? Which is a wonderful um, bracer with empathy, which is you have empathy for the people who matter and that you want to work with. And if there's someone who you, don't have that empathy for and you think maybe that's not going to happen you your empathy is to move as far away as possible well and and one of the things that i'm super mindful of is people maybe listening and be like oh well it's easy for you to say mike Mm -hmm. which probably is true it's like you know Mm -hmm. when i'm at a partner leader level it's easier for me to you know say no to work with certain people i totally get that but i also believe that there are things that anybody can do to get away from a situation and goes back to like my whole notion of, you know, things don't happen overnight. When I was thinking about how I wanted to live my life over the next decade, 
I played the long game. If you work with somebody that is an asshole, it may not change tomorrow or even next week. Mm -hmm. But if once again, you're super intentional about the things that you need to do, Mm -hmm. you can absolutely move away from, from working with somebody that you don't like. It just may take some work and there may be trade-offs. That makes me think of a, a client I'm working with right now who, uh, in a big leadership position and someone else in leadership, uh, was just interrupting him at every meeting, telling him how to do his work. And, um, and it was not going well and he didn't have the option. It was a leadership team that was not going to change unless he, he left and he wasn't going to leave. And his idea was to double down on empathy and say, how can I change my view of this person? And he just tried the lens of the reason this guy's telling me what to do is he's been here a lot longer than me and he wants me to succeed. Now, whether that was true or not, it apparently worked fabulously and was able to change this relationship. So I also think that a lot of the tools you use for empathy with the people who deeply matter to you might be tools that you can use for someone uh, who you have to work with, who is, uh, who is, as you say, not a person you want to be with. An asshole. Yeah, I totally. And, and I think what you're saying is, is right on. I don't, I don't think I've ever been like, Oh, I've had one experience with this person. I'm getting away from them. I think, you know, putting into place, you know, ways that you can work, changing even your style and behavior. That's one of the things that, Mm -hmm. you know, we think of a lot when I was at Deloitte, like, how do I, how do I model my behavior so I can work with somebody else? I'm getting at that person that is toxic, Mm -hmm. um, that there's nothing you're going to do to change them that you just need to walk away from. And the one thing I will tell, you know, other people that are listening my other experience in life and had this uh, experience several years ago. I've had it many times, and it's one one thing I've learned is that assholes get found out. It may take way longer than it should, but I have never seen somebody treat some treat people like shit for a sustained period of time that thrive long, long term. I just haven't. So you promised a story about hell yes, hell no. Well, first of all, I think this is important. I don't say hell yes, hell no. I say fuck yes, fuck no. <laughs> and the reason I say that, first of all, is because I this is my podcast. And when I when I signed up for it, I had the option to put clean or you know profanity. And so I chose profanity. So I could say fuck yes or fuck no on this podcast, <laughs> which makes me feel good. That makes but, me but feel the good. Reason, the reason why I did it is it's a very visceral term. Mm-hmm. I know when it's like, fuck yes, let's go do this. This lights my, you know, my hair on fire. I also know, you know, oh fuck, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And and the the binary decision is awesome for me. And I've also heard people say, like, you know, it's either an eight through a 10 or it's like a six or below. Like, I don't want to work on something that's a six. Mm-hmm. You want to work on something that's an eight. But for me, the whole idea of whenever you're presented with something. Oftentimes, once again, you know, people don't necessarily have a choice, but to try to tilt the odds that you're working on stuff where you're like, fuck yes, is a great way to live your life. And here's a perfect example. There was this opportunity that was presented to me probably about five years ago, and it was running a program that would have given me a crazy amount of visibility. Um, It would have been working with very, very senior leaders. It was a multi-day event. And quite frankly, I loved the leader that asked me to do it. Like one of my favorite people um, at Deloitte. 
The challenge was it was an area that I had zero expertise. I had zero relationships. And while I could have potentially emceed the event and done a, a good job because I would have prepared, I would have worked hard, it, it didn't align with any of the things that were important to me. Now, normally I would have said, yes, oh, of course. Oh, you guys like me. So it's playing to my, my insecurities and my, my ego maybe to a certain degree. But I said to this individual, I said, hey, listen, let me just give this a little bit of thought. And so when I went back, I looked at my plan and I said, is this a fuck yes or fuck no? And I said, it's not a fuck yes, because it's going to take me away from doing all the things that are critically important that I have spent that day a quarter thinking about. And this was not a trivial ass. This was going to be potentially like, you know, five to seven, maybe even more business days to get ready to actually, um, you know, do the event, all the activities afterwards. It was going to be a huge commitment. And so I went back to this individual and I said, I can't, you know, I can't do it. And here's why I explained to him, you know, this is the way that, you know, I really look at, you know, the activities or the projects that I take on. Um, and he really respected me for doing that. And then I said, you know, here are a few fabulous, if this is what you're looking for, you know, I know so-and-so has a lot of experience in this area and quite frankly, probably would do a much better job hosting this event than I would. And so I went back and I explained to him why it was not a fuck yes. I explained to him other folks, or I gave him some options mm. for some other folks that could potentially do it. And I have a great relationship with this individual to this day. I think, I think he respected me for it. That's, I love, I love that story. And I love that ending part where the, you, you could have just said, uh, no, thanks. I, I'm not going to do it. But those last two things, which is here's the, here's why. Uh, and, and then here's some recommendations. It's not that I'm not willing to do some work for you. It's that this doesn't fit in a framework that I have. Uh, and, and I'm not at all surprised that the relationship is, is good and probably even better because of that. You also gave, I think, a really beautiful how where with that moment where you say, let me give this a bit of thought. I have uh, always told every student of mine, when you get offered a contract, take it home. And, and this is in a freelance world. Um, I recently was offered a, a, a really nice job. And I, that I, it, it was with someone I was pretty sure I was not going to work with, but I, I listened to the whole thing. I wrote it down and I, I played the ass if I was going to take this job. Let's be real about it. And then after the call, I sat there and I parsed it out and realized really what it was, because in the moment, I, I wasn't realizing that this was actually three different jobs, four of which I would say hell no to, one of which I might say hell yes if it was separate, et cetera, et cetera. That taking a moment to let your thoughts coalesce allows you, I think, to finish that story really well. There's one thing you haven't spoken of. You have a little bit this idea of you taking some risk, and you did mention that you took some some shots along the way. Uh, if, if you're planning and you're planning to take some risks and, and, and be a maverick to say hell yes or hell no, or fuck yes, fuck no. Uh, what is it, what does it mean to be, get comfortable with people taking shots at you? I think it, I think first of all, it means that if you're going to do something that goes against the grain, you gotta be damn well prepared for people to take shots at you. Because if you're, trying to change something in an organization or change something that that you do whether it's serving clients or it doesn't really matter what it is there are people that are going to be vested with the current state 
And as a result of that, or they just may not like your idea, which is totally fine. And so you need to just get comfortable with the fact that people are going to take shots at you. Probably one of my favorite examples, and it's probably the point in which I was like, okay, I am getting more comfortable with this. But I was asked to lead a conversation, this was several years ago, around how we could show up differently in the marketplace. We didn't need to conclude on anything. We just needed to have a conversation with about, I think it was a hundred leaders. And I was like, oh, I could do that. That sounds like fun. Like I'm going to go out and find different examples of organizations outside of professional services and the things that they did really more to kind of inspire and get the conversation going. And so I did that and it was about 30 minutes. But then one of our leaders sat back, he kicked his legs up. He said, I just have one question. This was the very first question, by the way. Did you just waste 30 minutes of my life? I, I, I shit you not, Jeff. And I was like, oh, shit. But I, I, in the moment, I was like, you know what? I'm actually pretty confident in some of the stuff that I shared. And some of the stuff actually ultimately was put into place and funded and good things came out of it, right? <laughs> but had I not put myself out there, I would not have gotten things that I, I, well, it wasn't, I didn't even have a agenda coming in. I wouldn't have been able to do some of these things that I wanted to do that were different, that went against the grain that came out of that session. So I thank God for that every day. And yeah, it kind of sucked that I was kind of called out in front of a hundred peers and leaders, Mm -hmm. but you know, it actually ended up working out for me. And so one of the things I would tell my teams all the time is you know, if you're going to do something that matters, people are going to take shots at you and you just need to mentally prepare for it. And this is not a, a commercial for meditation, but just ironically, literally at that same moment where that CEO did that, I started to meditate every single day for like 20 to 30 minutes. And I, mm. I thank God I did because I think it's what gave me the ability in that moment of time not to freak out yeah. and to respond, I think, in a, in a very thoughtful way. And maybe that was part of my strategy to deal with, you know, those shots that were going to come at me. Not to let all that body language and that power play uh, uh, become something you believed. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, I, I I have to throw that, that when I was still in theater school, I, I went to an audition and uh, I, I auditioned and the, and the director was the only other person in the room. And he called me aside and he said, I'm not going to cast you, uh, but I am going to do you a favor. I'm going to tell you that you will never work. You will never get paid to be on stage. Uh, you, you're, and he listed all the ways I was terrible. And um, I was a teenager and I, I left, luckily I had, I had uh, some arrogance because I left thinking, I'm going to show you, you are wrong. I'm going to be working when you are long gone. And uh, it turned out that way. Uh, but thank God, because I could have believed him and you could have believed the CEO. So uh, that's a great piece of advice. Thank you for that. Hey, hey Jeff, you just reminded me something that I, I think about with my own life. And, and I think it does connect back to this podcast as well. I've never gotten better as a person from the good times ever. That's depressing, Mike. Okay. Really? No, no, no. But yeah, I mean, literally, I cannot think of a time where I grew as an individual when things were just great. I can't. I literally can't. It's, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that the good times are bad. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I don't personally grow as an individual when things are easy or good. I just don't. 
but I grow like crazy when shit, you know, bad shit comes at me. And, and quite frankly, it's one of the things when I, when I realized that a few years ago, one of the things I tell myself, and once again, you know, I've shared my son's story. I've shared some other things yeah. I do in the moment now ask myself, you know, how can I use this to become a better person? In the moment, in the moment, yes, not after, but in the moment, I do that now. Well, and after it seems like so. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not willing to go all the way to where you went, uh, but which doesn't matter. Except that I do love this idea of when a bad thing happens. The very first question is, uh, how am I growing right now? Um, and again, that's that fits uh, very much in terms of performance. Uh, in performance, when something goes wrong. Uh, so a lot of performers think, oh shit, uh, I'm embarrassed. Uh, but I, I was a juggler and you drop. And if you think, oh shit, I'm, I'm embarrassed when you drop, nothing goes well. But if you think, oh good, something exciting is going to happen now, an improviser's mindset, or, oh, I'm going to learn something from this audience. They haven't laughed at any of my jokes. All of that is the way that you get to be better and better and better. It's almost like, what if you looked at challenges in your life as a gift? Like how, yeah. how would you operate different as a human being? To me, I think it's a game changer because yes. what it got me out of is like sitting back and like adopting that victim mentality. Why me? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you know what? This is actually going to be something that I can use to become a better yeah. person. And, and there's a little fun in that fact that this person thinks they're putting you dead, the feet are up and say, did you, you know, did you just waste the last 30 minutes of my life? And you're thinking, oh, thank you for helping me out. I'm going to be a better person now. And if you're a little nasty like I am, and and then then I'll bury you. But that's not you. That's me. Well, Jeff, just to be super clear, I was not I was not at that place at that point in time. This is something I've realized over the last couple of years. Yeah. But I, I, all of that obscured a little bit this core idea you laid out, which is beautiful, which is at that moment of adversity, you can train yourself to, to think, what can I learn right away? And then you're talking about the kind of planning you do, the longer, deeper planning uh, that, that is also important. So both in the moment and then what happens afterwards are crucial to getting, as you say, creating those options of freedom down the road, which is such a beautiful phrase. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you get in since this is your podcast? There's one thing I wanted to share because I love it and it has kind of nothing to do with my story, but it's something that when I was doing a, a previous podcast, when I was talking to one of our former global CEOs, a guy named Barry Salzberg said to me that had a big impact on how I think about how you treat people and how you make time for people. Because that's one of the things I, I I was I was really thoughtful about how I use my time. I think I've kind of made that clear during this last hour. Yeah. But um, what I what I've realized, and actually this is kind of what I'm doing or why I'm doing what I am doing now, which I'll touch on in a second. But he said he said people are like Jello. This is what he said. I'm like what the <laughs> hell does Jello have to do with people? And he said, because I asked him the question, actually, I said, you know what blows me away about you, Barry? I said, you know, I, I know you, but we're not best buds. And, you know, I, I know that you know who I am, but you're the global CEO. Jeez, you must be, you know, super busy and 
you know, there's a lot more important people to talk to than me. And, and this has absolutely nothing to do with me, just to be clear. And he said, you know, Mike, people are like jello. You know, you have a big dinner and there's always room for jello <laughs> in your stomach. And he's like, I don't really care how busy I am. There's always room for people. I have <laughs> stuck with me because now it doesn't matter who reaches out to me, especially now that I've got more time. But mm-hmm. if somebody's like, I need some advice or guidance, or I need you to coach me on something or whatever, can I just get five minutes of your time? I will always find yes. time because if the global CEO of our company can make time for little old me, you know, where I just had a couple questions about my career, you know, I can make time for other people. And it's maybe the best advice, you know, using Jello as the metaphor that I've ever, <laughs> I've ever received in my life. So Mike, I know in time to sing your song, uh, a question you always ask is, what is your song? So Mike Kearney, what is your song? <laughs> so I've, I've explained this and I'm going to give two answers to this. I'll tell you my song and why. So First of all, I love music. So there's so many songs and people have told me that like, Mike, how, how the hell can I answer that question with one song? Um, so this isn't even necessarily my favorite song, but it goes back to the point of the podcast. And so when I, when I ultimately did leave Deloitte, there was a few things that I wanted to do. And I love talking to people that got knocked on their ass. I'm like, I want to do a podcast. Like I've done this before. I really struggled coming up with a name. Like I knew the whole idea was, you know, behind, you know, people that had these moments of clarity in their life where things were difficult, but they overcame and there's all these potential learnings that you could kind of pull out of it. But I wanted the name of a podcast that was distinct and different. And quite frankly, if you Googled it, you wouldn't get 50 other hits. And so I was so focused on like stock and loss and, you know, all the cliche type things. And so I, I, I mentioned this, you know, in my opening of my podcast, I, I literally was sitting um, outside one night and I was listening to music. And one of my favorite bands of all time is Led Zeppelin. Like love them, love them, love them. I, I love every song they've probably ever put out and Ramble On came on. So Ramble On. And then the lyric was time to sing my song. It's mm-hmm. the, you know, Ramble On. It's time to sing my song. And I was like, oh my God. That's what I'm looking for. That's really where I'm at in my life right now is I want to help people sing their song. And the whole idea of having a podcast where I could give people a platform and I could just ask them some questions, great questions like you did. And maybe through the power of their story, others can hear once again, some nuggets that that they could take away and then improve their life. That is like, that's all I want to do nowadays. So that's my song. It's Ramble On. Led Zeppelin, and it's because it was the inspiration behind this podcast. That was beautiful. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that. Hey, Jeff, first of all, I just want to close. Thank you just to everybody. This was Jeff's idea. I'm not that big of a narcissist to turn it back on myself, but he said, Mike, wouldn't it be kind of cool for you to share your story if you've got this platform? And I was like, First, I was like, I don't know. That's kind of weird. But then I was like, no, you know what? If people are listening to me, I've got I've got my story. Maybe there's something that I could share. And, and Jeff, there is literally, and I'm going to say this just because you um, asked to do this or asked me if this, if I thought this would be a good idea, but there's literally nobody that I respect more from a communications presentation acting. So for you to offer to do this um, is a gift. So I just want to, I just really want to thank you for doing this and spending your time and asking me these questions. Oh, thank you for that. And 
Yeah, you know, I love talking to you, and I thought, let's record while we're talking, too. Uh, yeah, was- we've had enough of these conversations, <laughs> like, yeah, that are not recorded, so yes. Uh, thanks, Mike. That was a lot of fun, I have to say. Jeff, you are a natural. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story and all of the incredible questions. If you are still listening, my hope is that you are able to pick up a nugget or two that you can apply to your life. So I am now six episodes in with several more in the can. When I started this, I never imagined the range, rawness of the stories that have been shared. My goal is to publish one story every two weeks, maybe more frequently in the future. But to make that happen, I am always on the hunt for great stories of people who are once lost and now are singing their song. Hit me up if you have a great story or if you know someone who does. On social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn, mkearney33 on Twitter. You can even email me at mike at timetosingyoursong.com. Until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place, something that you have left behind. Let it be something good. <laughs>